Hello. The date was the 2nd of May, 2009, almost seven years ago to the day. My now wife, Sarah, was, was woken up by her mum as she was staying there for the weekend. It was only seven in the morning and Sarah woke up and said, what are you doing, mum? It's seven in the morning. It's a Saturday. And her mum passed her a sat-nav and a clue. And she thought, what's this? What's this? And her mum said, look and follow. So Sarah went down to the car. She got in. She followed the directions. And she ended up in Collie Hill in Surrey. And she read the clue. And it led her to another clue. In fact, there was a series of clues leading up a hill. Meanwhile, at the top, I'm standing there, nervous as anything. I'm by a Victorian folly at the top of of, uh, Collie Hill. It's a warm, sunny day. I've got my two friends Ollie and Wendy from Eastbourne, they're helping me out. Ollie is down at the bottom of the hill. Wendy is in a bush with a camera. (laughs) Ollie phones me. He says, she's arrived. She's here. I'm I'm like, oh, she's here. Okay, okay, okay. Tell me what's happening. She's reading the first clue. It's all good. Okay, okay. Phone down. Two minutes later, phone rings. Andy, Andy, uh, she's missed a clue. She's missed a clue. What shall I do? What shall I do? I'm like, I I don't know. Just just kind of follow. Make sure she, she, she gets back on the right track. So Ollie follows Sarah, overtakes her, and then just says to her, turn around, go that way, go that way. She's like, who's this strange person? He turns around. She's like, Ollie, what are you doing here? He said, pretend I'm not here. Pretend I'm not here. <laughs> Carries on. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the top of the hill, I'm there. Some cyclists come along, and they stop at a bench. This is the bench where I want to do my big pop the question. So I go over to them. I say, excuse me, excuse me. Would you mind moving? They said, well, we're just chatting. Well, I'm just about to propose to my girlfriend, please. They said, fine, well, we'll move. I expect them to move straight away. They carry on talking. I'm nervous. <laughs> the phone rings. Ollie again. She's near the top. She's near the top. She's come back on track. She's found the clue in the tree. It's hilarious. She's running, jumping, missing the clue, falling to the ground, trying again, running, jumping, missing. It's hilarious. You should see it. I'm there. I'm like, thanks. And then she appears over the brow of the hill. And, and just as she does so, the cyclists, I'm just about to tell them, you need to go. They move. Phew. And she comes. I hide. There are petals on the ground. Candles. I'm not kidding you. Guys, if you want to propose, it's the way to do it. And she, she comes up. Petals. Candles. I appear. Lead her to the bench. No cyclists. Get down on one knee. Ask her to marry me. She says yes. Evidence. This is not staged. This is the actual proposal. My, Wendy's in a bush taking a photo. And then I lead her, glorious view, to a champagne breakfast, fruit. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it, it, was, it was a great day. Why do I tell you this story? Well, the, to get you all in trouble, that's, that's it. This was, this was awesome. And actually, we went down to a restaurant afterwards, and I got all her friends from Eastbourne in the restaurant. Big cheer. So even better. Thank you. That's fine. Anyway, it was a significant day. This is why I'm telling this story. It was a significant, memorable day. And the significance of the day wasn't primarily in the day itself, though it was great and wonderful. What an experience. The significance of this day was that it was the doorway to a new season. It was the beginning of a new season. And so today I want us to turn to a passage. 
in the Bible, which it describes another significant day in the history of God's people. So if you turn to Acts 2, we're going to read from 1 to 18. It should come up on the screen behind me. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of them hears them in their native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, I'm glad the interpreter's not here, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. What a day. What a power encounter. A significant day in the lives of the disciples because as we learned last week, they were a fearful rabble huddled up, confused, not sure what had just gone before. And the Spirit comes on them and transforms these men into people who speak boldly for him. But the significance of this day was far greater than simply what the disciples experienced in the moment, powerful though that moment was. The significance of this day was actually tied up with what Peter said at the end of our passage, when he explained what was happening. And what he did is he referred to an Old Testament prophecy, a promise, if you like. You see, in the Old Testament, the Spirit worked in a slightly different way. The Spirit would come on particular people at particular times for particular purposes. Men like Gideon and Samson and David and Saul. He would come and specifically land on them, pour out his spirit so that they could do tasks that were anointed and equip them for service. There was never really talk of a corporate empowerment. This was, if you like, held back by God. But then we get these moments in the Old Testament when prophetic promises come. And this one in Joel 2, 28 to 29 is the most famous of these. It's a great, great promise, isn't it? Now, if we fast forward several hundred years and we come to Jesus, he's died, he's risen, he's about to ascend on high, and he speaks the following to the disciples. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised. In other words, this prophetic word, 
wait for this gift, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying to the disciples, the long wait, hundreds of years, is nearly over. It's tantalizingly close. And then he says, the gift that my father has promised is soon to be fulfilled among you. And they would have been confused. They wouldn't have known what that meant. But they would have done what he said, and they did. They waited. The moment finally arrives, and the Spirit is poured out. The real significance of this day is not primarily the manifestations that take place, the presence of God coming. The significance is that it was the fulfillment of the Father's promise that the outpouring of the Spirit is not for an exclusive few, but it is available for all. That's good news, isn't it? And this is reiterated later by Peter in his sermon when he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. That means us. That means us. The promise is for us. So this day is significant because it is a gateway into a new season, a new age. The age of the Spirit had come. And it's an age in which we are caught up. Now, you may have uh, noticed, as as I've been reading through these different scriptures, that there is different terminology. We get phrases like, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. I will pour out my Spirit. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you'll sometimes hear people differentiating between the two. They might say, well, the baptism is different to being filled with the Spirit and that kind of thing. But I think it's pretty clear just from looking at these scriptures that actually they're all pointing to the same thing. They're all pointing to this significant experience that they're going to have. They're interchangeable. Now, the question is, what is the baptism with the Holy Spirit? We've heard it spoken of. Some of you might, might be less familiar. I'm aware in this room we've got different experiences. And so I, I want to look at that now. And, and the answer isn't actually cr- completely crystal clear when you look at Scripture. In this auditorium and even on the staff, there will be diff- slightly different views on precisely what it means. Now, broadly speaking, there are three positions in evangelical Christianity. The first is this, that the baptism with the Spirit takes place at conversion at the moment you decide to become a Christian, whether you feel anything or not. And essentially, you don't need to seek more of him. He's in you. He's with you. The second position is this, the baptism with the Spirit is a second blessing after the first blessing of conversion. And it's something that you seek, and it should be an obvious and powerful moment. So our main passage today would be one that they use to back up that position. And the third position is this, that the baptism with the Spirit is part of what's termed the normal Christian birth. So the argument of that goes that there is a four-step process to be fully spiritually born. Repentance, faith, baptism in water, and baptism in the Spirit. And sometimes it's paralleled with an actual birth where there's a process, the baby comes out, the cord is cut, the baby's washed, and then there's the first cry. And so there's a bit of a parallel there. Now, just to qualify, what it's not saying is that you need to be baptized in water and baptized in the Spirit to become a Christian. 
Romans 9.10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is what is required to become a Christian and to be saved. But what it's saying essentially is that in order to come fully into all that God has for you as a Christian, these four steps need to be followed. And, and what they would argue is that they need to be followed quite soon after each other. So we often see in the New Testament the expectation is that you will repent, have faith, be baptized, and be filled with the Spirit all very quickly. Now, it didn't always happen like that. Sometimes the order was slightly different. They might have been saved, then baptized in the Spirit, and then baptized in other scriptures you see in Acts 8 that they are baptized in the Spirit, they're saved and baptized in the Spirit simultaneously. So it's not clear and it's not always, it's a little bit messy sometimes. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there is that expectation. Now being a simple-minded man as I am, I try to look at it simply. And there are these different views, these range of views. For me, it is clear that we receive the Spirit when we become Christians. There are many verses that show that. So one of these is Romans 8 verse 9, which says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So when we confess faith in Jesus, the Spirit comes to us. The Bible is very clear about this. In Ephesians 2, 1, it says, We were dead in our sins. When Adam took the apple, death came. Spiritual death came. We were dead in our sins. If I waved a £10 note in front of a corpse, the the corpse wouldn't be able to respond, would it? It's dead. And in the same way, we can't respond. Our natural inclination, though we are free, is bent towards sin, to disobedience to God. That, That is our natural inclination. And we cannot, in and of ourselves, choose God. It's only the Spirit that comes and enlivens us to see Him and to choose Him. So the Spirit comes to us. Becoming a Christian is a powerful thing. We are brought from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We are brought from death to life. It's a complete paradigm shift. It changes everything. It's powerful being saved. Alistair McGrath said, the only thing we contribute to our justification is the sin that God so graciously forgives. The second thing I would say is this. It's also clear that God wants us to know him more. He wants us to know him more. And as we've looked at the passages earlier, it's very clear that Jesus teaches them to wait for the Spirit of God. We're meant to seek more of him in John 14 16 to 17, Jesus says, speaking of the Spirit, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. You see that? He lives in us. He comes to us at at conversion, but he will also be in us. Now, when I say say this, I want to say... Seeking more of of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be dramatic like what we saw uh, in in our passage. Sometimes it is. Sometimes God comes as dramatic encounter, speaking of tongues, manifestations, and that kind of thing. That would be my story. I've had moments in my walk with Jesus when I've been saved, but then God has come powerfully upon me. 
and spoken to me in a way that changes everything. But there have also, also been moments when I've just been doing normal things with God in my prayer times and the Spirit comes to fill me. And it's not quite so dramatic. So, for example, we read later that though Peter had this dramatic, dramatic encounter, we see in Acts 4 verse 8, it says, Then Peter, standing before the Sanhedrin, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. So he's standing there before the Sanhedrin, and the Spirit fills him so that he can speak God's word. We don't see any manifestation there. It's not spoken of. He's standing there, and the Spirit fills him. In fact, Peter had three separate moments of being filled with the Spirit in chapters 2 to 4 of Acts. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Spirit. This is the present continuous tense. In other words, it's saying, Go on being filled with the Spirit. So there's a sense in which we are to seek Him. At times it might be dramatic. At other times it just might be quiet. A still, small voice. God coming to us. Filling us. The key is that God wants us to experience and know him. And it might happen in one way, it might happen in another way, and there'll be all sorts of experiences in this room. But his desire is that we know him better. And so he comes to fill us. I like to use the illustration of a gas boiler. A gas boiler has a pilot light. If the pilot light's not on, the gas boiler's dead, it's unusable. But when the pilot light comes on, something's going on. And, 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 uh, and as winter comes, we turn up our boiler and it, and it heats up. And it, sometimes it's steady, sometimes it's dramatic. But the key is the pilot light. It's like we're, we're saved. We have the Spirit. And there'll be times and moments when he comes in power. And other times when he comes more gradually. What's the purpose of the baptism with the Spirit? Well, firstly, the Spirit comes to empower us. We learned last week from Malcolm, didn't we, that he empowers us for mission. So he... he so we see with Peter, filled with the Spirit and power to speak the truth of God. And that's what he does to us. He, he, he gives us the Spirit, empowers us for mission. Secondly, he empowers us to live God-glorifying lives. So when the Spirit comes to us, it should result in us being changed, transformed, displaying the fruit of the Spirit. So Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, when we look at Acts 2, we can, we can look at it and think, oh, I want that, I want that, I want the manifestations of God. Actually, someone could be filled with the Spirit, they could show dramatic outward manifestation, maybe they shake, fall, speak in tongues. But then you look at their lives, and actually, not much has happened, not much has changed. And you think, have they been filled with the Spirit? Other, some, someone else might just be sitting quietly. Then you notice in their lives, wow, something's changed here. So live God-glorifying lives. Secondly, the, the baptism of the Spirit gives us assurance that we are children of God. So Romans eight fifteen to 17 says the following, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So God wants to pour his Spirit out to us. And you see in the passage, his Spirit testifies with us, with our inner man, 
we are children of God. So I often sing the song to my son, Jesus, I'm not going to sing it, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There'll be times when we go through dry seasons when that's all we've got, and we just have to tell ourselves, Jesus loves me, because the Bible tells me so. But actually, God's heart is that we experience his love for us, that we know his love for us. The Puritan Thomas Godwin, who lived over 300 years ago, described it this way. He, he talked about a man walking along with a child, his son. And this child knew the love that he had for him as they walked along. But in a moment, he scoops up this child, sweeps him into his arms, showers him with kisses, embraces him, and tells him how much he loves him. And then he puts the child down again, carries on holding his hand. The child knew before, God loves me. But in that moment, wow, he experienced his father's love for him. And that's what God wants to do for us. The third thing that the baptism of the Spirit does is it brings understanding of truth. So in John 16, 13, we read, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. When the Spirit of God came upon Peter at Pentecost, previously you'd seen him struggling, hadn't you? We know Peter, the one who denied Jesus, you know, the one who messed up time and time again, weak and feeble and unable. But when the Spirit of God came upon him at Pentecost, his lack of understanding that he'd had previously, his confusion, his worry, suddenly the truth became real to him and he was able to expound the meaning of the death of Jesus in a way that he was never able to do before. I remember once at Stonely Bible Week. Anyone attend Stonely Bible Week years ago? Many years ago, yeah. I remember once sitting there listening to Terry Virgo preaching in an evening session. It was a dramatic meeting and he spoke about the inerrancy of the word of God the infallibility, the fact that the Bible is true. It's true, it's alive, it's vibrant, it's real. He spoke about that. And as he did so, the Holy Spirit fell on me, just overwhelmed me. I remember just falling off my seat, just overwhelmed. And I went back to my tent later that evening and opened the Word of God. And suddenly, the Word of God came alive to me. I I just saw things. God revealed his truth to me as I received from him in his word. Okay, so these are some of the things that it does, but what hinders us from receiving the Holy Spirit? Well, firstly, some, t- some of us maybe, you, you, you may not see the need, don't really see the need for it. I'm quite a successful businessman or I'm a mother bringing up my children. I'm doing all right. Thank you very much. Life is busy. Life is sometimes hard, but things are okay. And you think, oh, I I don't really need this. Actually, we do. Because in life, no matter how good it's going, how successful we are, there will be moments when we feel dry and it's as if we're driving on empty. The tank is empty. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Sometimes we can see a problem and it's almost as though we're using a rock hammer to get through it. Has anyone seen the Shawshank Redemption? 
you know, trying to get, build, dig a tunnel with a rock hammer. We just, we're, we're earnest, we're, we're doing well, but we forget there's a bunch of dynamite there gathering dust. Carry on. God's power is available to us. We need him. We need the spirit. We need him to work with us. Secondly, what hinders us? Doubt for some of us. You might be in a meeting and you see seeing lots of things going on and you just think, I, I don't want to pray because I'm worried I might not receive anything. What happens if I don't receive anything? Do you know what Jesus said? He says, he simply says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What do you notice there? Jesus is saying the same thing, the exact same thing, six times. Yeah? Because he knows our tendency is to doubt. So he's saying it six times. The other thing Jesus is emphasizing here is that we need to be persistent. We don't want to just kind of say, God, I I want to know more of you. And we, we just don't sense anything. Oh, I'll give up. It's not, it's, not, it's not for me. It's for that spiritual person over there. It's for Steve Tibbet. It's not for me. No, no, no. What it's saying is persist. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. Jesus wants to come to us by his spirit. Remember Jacob in the Old Testament said, wrestling with the angel of God. I will not let you go until you bless me. Sometimes God wants us to have that heart. I will not let you go. God, I, I want more of you. The third thing that often hinders us, even if we get over the first hurdle of doubt, is that we might trip on the next hurdle of fear. The fear is about, what will I receive? Will it be something good? I'm kind of standing in this meeting and someone's crying over there, someone's laughing, there's stuff going on, I'm not sure. Will it be good? Well, Jesus continues in the same passage and says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What a vivid illustration. If if my little Hudson said, Daddy, can I have an egg? I don't know why he would ever say that, but if he did, I'm not going to give him a scorpion, am I? We wouldn't treat our children like that. And it's, so it's inconceivable that God would give us something which is bad for us. So we can come to him knowing he's trustworthy and receive from him the Holy Spirit from him. And lastly, inadequacy. Sometimes some of us feel like I'm, I'm not worthy. If you knew my life, God, you wouldn't want to give anything to me. If you knew what I'd done, the sins that I'd committed, you wouldn't want to don't give anything to me. Do you know what? It's very clear. Acts 2.38. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A gift is given. A gift is not earned. We don't have to come to a point where we're like clean and healthy and perfect before he will pour his spirit out on us. No, we come as we are. We say, God, I'm empty. God, I feel dirty. I need more of you. God wants to come to us by his spirit in those moments and fill us. 
So what qualifies us then as we close? What qualifies us? Jesus says this in John 7, 37. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He doesn't say, if anyone is holy, if anyone is worthy, let him come. He says, if anyone is thirsty, that's what he wants from us. He wants us just to come thirsty. And some of you here, you might say, well, Andy, I'm, I'm not even thirsty. I, I don't really have a desire for him. If that's you, you can pray this to him. God, give me a thirst for you. God, make me thirsty. Because it's him, isn't it? It's his spirit in us that does that. The significance of the day of Pentecost was that it ushered in a new age where his spirit is available to all. I would encourage you and urge you this morning, and over the coming weeks as we go through this series, come to him. He is a good giver. We don't focus on the gifts, although we desire the gifts, but we focus on the giver of the gift. The Spirit comes to us. He is the most self-deprecating person that there is. The Spirit comes, why? To turn our attention to Jesus. To turn our attention to Jesus, to make us fall more in love with Jesus. So Spirit, come in this place. Turn our attention to you.